Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Christopher, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here. Before we start with some of the more ethics-focused questions, you are a rare combination of visual artist yourself and leader of a major arts institution. So can you just tell us a little bit about your personal trajectory and how you, how you got to the Royal Academy, both on the arts side and on the arts management side? Um, it, well, that's very specific because, um, to my enormous surprise, many years ago, um, Nick Sirota asked me to go on the board of the Tate. And uh, I was a youngish artist. I was completely surprised. I thought all trustees wore top hats and were rather sinister capitalists. And uh, I went on the board, I was terrified. But I found after a while, I had a voice, I could say something. I could sort of read the meeting in some sort of intuitive way. So I enjoyed it, it was a wonderful, honour and privilege. And after that, I did several other things like that at the National Gallery. So at the level of governance? Yes, at the level of go governance. I found it completely fascinating uh, because in a way I was speaking as an artist. So I did have an expertise to bring to the table, even though the discussions may often have been financial or legal. But nevertheless, I, I'd often think to myself, what would Turner have thought? And that was often helpful in those discussions. So having, as it were, primed myself for this double life, look, here I am in my suit, and then my life in the studio. When I joined the Royal Academy, when I was elected in 1996, I already had an interest in the potential of arts organisations. So I ended up, I ended up here. And what do you think the influence is of the arts on the ethics of society in their own time uh, and subsequent generations? If you talk to artists, and I'm in a way, in a sense, slightly leaving myself to one side for the time being on this, okay. artists would regard themselves as being more ethical than the general population. I don't think there's any grounds for that whatsoever. I was going to say, just by nature of the fact that they're artists? <laughs> it's a... Just by nature of the fact they're artists. Um, I don't think there's any, any grounds for that. I think we all speak as individuals. However, there's an element of what they do t 
typically solitary decision-making in the studio, which I do think has a marked ethical component because you're not necessarily making a judgment for others, you're making a judgment for yourself. And when you make a judgment for yourself, in a sense, it's a, it feels like a very accurate test. You're not deluding anyone else other than yourself. And that's, a, that's really rather tough um, because you're the sole audience and originator of the thought process. So it's more an exercise in honesty than an exercise in trying to influence the ethical decisions of society more broadly? Well, unless it works at that level, it, it can't have, bear any responsibility for okay, further... so it's establishing further. a foundation. Exactly. And that, in, in fact, the sort of word one would want to use relative to what an artist does and to what I do is the question of authenticity. Slightly switch it from honesty to authenticity. Right. And you get a, into a rather... quite a difficult area, but nevertheless is one I think most artists think about a lot. So authenticity is a word that comes up a lot in discussions about ethics in different settings, mm -hmm. some more theoretical than others. But how do you define authenticity as an artist? I don't. <laughs> but I work with it. And in fact, that, that probably and that's working towards the definition. Because the action, the actions that an artist makes, in the sense of making, are decisions made through making. So I'll give, I'll give an example. Um, as, uh, as a political being, I may take this view or that view, and I may be right or I may be wrong, I may misinterpret myself, I may not understand what I really think. But when it comes to the way I walk down the street unconsciously, I would hope that has an authentic <clears throat> physical reality that's me. Now, that may, that may be such a base low level that it's uninteresting, but I think for an artist, it's profoundly interesting because the constructive things you do, shall I put the red there? Shall I put the blue there? Shall I make it thick or thin? They're decisions coming out of, you hope, an authentic process. So there's an intention there, but it's also a natural process like walking? Well, that raises other questions, but I think the, in terms of a natural process, that would interest me as an artist very much. Is there such a thing as a natural process? Can I, as it were, return to something essential or, that, or reliably true about what I'm saying? And I think a lot of artists spend a lot of time thinking about this. I, I do. And there, there, are, there are ways to analyse it. One way is to talk about recognition. Um, given walking in a landscape, you will, some, something will suddenly call to you. You recognise something. Now, that's not a willed effort of projecting yourself into the landscape. Something is calling to you that you recognise. And that recognition, you can't normally preempt it. That's what you feel. Mm -hmm. That's what you feel. That's interesting. <laughs> that's what one's looking for. Similarly, I, I make my paintings by, uh, through intuition and experience and judgement and what do I feel, what do I think. It's a long long, long drawn-out process, trying to pick up what I really feel, Okay. <laughs> what really moves me. And are you trying to have that recognition in people who view your paintings? Because I read in the research that you use symbols and that they're very universally recognisable, sort of irrespective of culture. 
Is that a... That would that certainly that would certainly interest me. I think colour response would be one of them. Okay. Uh, there are other other things. For example, um, one was always told when when uh, learning to paint, um, particularly in the era when I was trained, which is the late sixties, early seventies, that you should avoid recognisable symbols. It's a sort of literary shorthand. It's not real painting. But of course, as a as a sign recognised by our species. The face, the eye, the figure, we're enormously sensitive to them. So they're very powerful things that you can deploy. One must be careful of things being corny or conventional or boring or sentimental, but that's not a reason for not using them. One of the reasons I asked the question is that I'm interested in this question of how universally understandable, or to use your word, feelable, um, ethical decision making is. How much do we uh, have to construct ethical decisions with intention and how much are ethical decisions based on things that we all feel sort of to some extent the way you're talking about how some of the symbols or colors will be recognized and felt. But just along these lines and both with respect to the Royal Academy and your, your own work as an artist, to what extent do you feel that individual artists or arts institutions have a responsibility to influence the ethics of their time? Do, do they have an active responsibility or is the responsibility of the artist or the art institution what I would call pure aesthetic or um, some sort of pure musical endeavor in the case of music? There's no such thing. Okay. All aesthetic decisions are colored by atti attitudes. It's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to aim for a pure aesthetic decision. I'm just saying the reality is they're completely intermixed. Um, I think it's a noble aim for the arts to be ethical. Whether we achieve it, I don't know, but it's certainly a noble aim. I would have thought that if, if the arts do have any responsibility or if I have a responsibility as an artist, I would regard a responsibility to be truthful and honest. And that's the point at which one has to raise the commercial question, because I sell my paintings to live. Should I follow the market and just paint those green ones, which everybody seems to like, or not? That's, that's a type, for me, that's a type of ethical dilemma, which artists have always faced. And of course, they have to manage their livelihoods with remaining true to themselves. I think the same applies to institutions. Uh, we know the exhibitions, generally, we know the exhibitions which are very successful. And if you put on that, so I won't even mention them because you know what I'm talking right. about. If we put on that every year, we will have blockbusters. But we start to feel really miserable about that. We feel we've let people down. So we try to put together uh, a menu of exhibitions, which, of which some are difficult. And the good news is occasionally we, we put on something like that that the public enormously appreciates. We did an exhibition of architecture called Sensing Spaces, which was an experiential exhibition where you could climb up towers and you could touch everything and every room was a different experience. And we didn't know whether anybody would come. Now, that is potentially a very expensive mistake. It's a big success, <laughs> big success. So it, it's, an, it's an odd mixture. Oh, always. And sometimes 
I would imagine that you get people in the door with what you would call a blockbuster. But once they're in the door, then they'll take the time to wander down the hall and see something that will open their eyes to something they'd never heard of. Exactly. Um, exactly. And uh, the other thing that we have to manage all the time is the, the level at which we're speaking. Because academies have traditionally spoken at rather a high level. You know, an expression you don't hear very often now is high art. Well, high art actually had a serious meaning. It was, it was aspirational, difficult. It, it was about the canon. You needed a certain amount of background insight to, to, to follow it. We don't talk about that anymore. But nevertheless, academies were designed to take you on the journey upwards, as it were, to use that. Aspirational journey. Aspirational journey, definitely. I find what you're saying very interesting. I came from a breakfast this morning where one of the topics was how experts and expertise is in disfavor. And um, there's a need for experts to fight back. But one of the questions was how do we communicate that expertise? And whether it's um, the head of the Federal Reserve Bank in the US uh, or indeed politicians. I mean, today happens to be election day in the US. And we're certainly seeing a watering down of high communication, if you mm. want to call it that. Mm. Uh, so can you speak a little bit more about the, about the concern for communicating or for reaching your audiences and exactly how and why you need to change the way you're speaking about what you do? Occasionally I use my mother as an illustration. All mothers are wonderful illustrations. Mothers um, come up a lot in these ethics conversations. Um, I, I hear her sort of listening, um, he, he, even as, I, as, as I'm talking. Um, when she came to London, because we lived down in Portsmouth in the provinces. When she came to London, she wanted the Dick Whittington experience. The streets should be paved with gold. This is what a capital city should look like. And when she came, went to a museum, she wanted to go up steps and she expected a portico. She didn't want open access. She felt she had that at home. And I always think about that. And when people say, oh gosh, look at the portico, look at the courtyard, look at the columns, look at the gilding. It'll frighten the children. Well, it might frighten the children, but I turn it the other way around. I say the reason it's like that is to show the children how much we value art. Adults believe in this. Therefore, they gild the ceiling. Therefore, they put the columns there. Therefore, they try and rem remind you of ancient Greece. It's not only worth investing in, it's worth understanding that it's holding a place in history. Yes, yes. Um, that's very, very interesting. I hadn't put it, I heard it put that way in terms of um, portico and gilding and all the rest. Yes. Where do you get your personal principles as a leader, as an artist? Where do you get your true north? Is it religion or, you know, you mentioned your mother. Uh, is it other artists? Uh, is it intellectual ideals? Artists are enormously competitive. They're a combination of paranoia and competition. And I think we all feel that we're contributing somehow to something, which we do question, but we're probably too involved in being part of it to question. And that being part of, and thinking of the great painters, the great artists, is that an answer to that, to your question? I'm not sure it is. But if we go back, if we go back to sort of your, what I would call guiding moral principles, mm. Where do you get the, uh, the principles that guide your decision-making as an artist or as a leader, or the ethics of your leadership? So you mentioned authenticity. Mm. That strikes me certainly. as a principle, you know, honesty. Certainly that, um, certainly that. Um, 
But where do you look for your inspiration for your principles? For some reason, I'm struggling giving you a direct answer. Odd things are coming to my head. Okay. Um, there was a, I once heard a wonderful interview with Vladimir Nabokov. And, he, and someone said, what are your principles? He said, be kind, be brave, be proud. Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. That's already a pretty, <laughs> pretty and, challenging list. But also, if you take the last one, there might be quite a few raised eyebrows about that. Be proud. But actually, again, thinking with children, or people who don't know about the arts, they need to know you are convinced. And I am convinced. I'm absolutely convinced. And when I talk about the RA, I talk about it with conviction. I completely believe in it. Not a... Not a a shadow of a doubt about why it's important, why its historic background is worth continuing. So I, think, I think history, about that a lot. You mentioned history. You're about to come to a 250th anniversary, if I'm not mistaken. So why is, why is your belief so, so clear? What is this historic importance that you refer to? When I, when I went back to my experience on the tape board and where a big question comes up, and I think to myself, what would Turner have thought? What would Turner have thought about the way you're proposing to show his picture? The more I know about the early days of the Academy, the more I know about what Reynolds in my position faced, the more I know it was sort of the same. <laughs> the minutes of the early council meetings, the disputes, the little human jealousies and problems, just the same. But the way they dealt with it is enormously impressive. They didn't necessarily deal with it better than we do. We face this cycle of personality, personality conflict often. But the general tra trajectory, I believe in, because it should be not the substitution of one artist for another, but the accumulation of experience, generation after generation. That's the, that's the dream. I love your word, accumulation. <laughs> That's the dream, because substitution is, is deeply negative. Well, it does give some, some sense of almost disposable. Yes, yes. Also, it's relative, and I'm not a relativist. It's seeking out, is that better than that? Is that better than that? How do you keep it doing that? And that's, that's why the 250th for us is, is enormously important, because we have made the academy better. We've held on to something that might have failed in the bad years. It really might have failed. And a lot of British institutions, which were constitutionally very well set up, failed through lack of belief or just exhaustion. Exhaustion. And I think we've picked, my generation picked some of these institutions up again. Well, I think you've answered my question because one of the principles of, of as you say, accumulation um, is particularly important today. Because there, as you, as you well know, in society today, this, this idea of ethical relativism uh, is increasingly popular, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, it's, um, I would use a very simple word to describe it, which is excuse. Yes. Uh, but I love your word accumulation. Also, also just passing the buck. Right, right, <laughs> passing. Someone else's problem. So can we focus a little bit on the business side and the ethical challenges that you face um, as a leader of an institution like this? You are uh, exclusively privately funded, if I understand so, compared to the other great London-based institutions like the Tate and the V&A and the National Gallery. You don't receive government funding, and that's a very deliberate choice. 
can you talk a little bit about that, but also any of the other major ethical conundrums that you face in running the Royal Academy as a business? Um, well, when you say it's a deliberate choice, for a start, it wasn't like that at the beginning, because the king, that was George III, funded the Royal Academy for the, for the first couple of decades. And then he stopped. And I think in the 1830s, there was a big inquiry from the government, knowing that the Royal Academy was a, an important place for the arts. They sort of, to slightly exaggerate, made a land grab on the Academy. And they called the president in for a parliamentary inquiry to decide what the relationship was between the government and the, and the Academy. They sort of wanted in on it to have some control. And Martin Archer who's the who was the president at the time, and in fact, Turner was his deputy president. He stood in for a while for Martin Archer He fought a very stout defense of the Academy to keep its independence. So it could speak without anyone thinking the government was quietly telling it what to say. However, the government perfectly reasonably said, well, if that's the way you want it, you've got it. <laughs> no more money, you're out on your own. And the Academy from then on slightly fell outside the so-called establishment. The great figures like Lord Leighton in the 1860s, you think of as establishment figures, but actually the Academy was slightly separate with its own view. That's very, very important because if you as a taxpayer are collecting art, having art collected for you, and it's just going through one institution, that strikes me as not entirely sound. You need other voices. So the Royal Academy, by with its independence of government funding, I think at least gives the opportunity for there to be other voices. And we have this, um, we do a toast regularly at the dinners to the Queen. And people say, oh, how quaint, how nice, what a great way to start a dinner. Our patron, protector and supporter, imagine the Queen, has tremendous symbolism. Because what we're saying is, don't even think about coming on our patch, because there's someone higher will look after us. Now, to some extent, don't tell anybody, that may be unrealistic, but it has symbolism. And symbolism affects how people think about institutions. I haven't answered your business question, but <laughs> it sort of sits... But, but before we get to my business question, I find it very interesting, this question of free speech. Yeah. Um, because there are academic institutions that defend uh, academic integrity, that have defend academic freedom, but do receive a significant uh, amount of government funding. Yes. So, for example, all of the UK higher education, or many of the UK higher education institutions. Mm. And I find it interesting that in this kind of, in the artistic arena, there seems to be a greater need to separate uh, or perhaps it's best expressed as a greater benefit from separating government funding from, from the institutional independence. I think it's probably because of the way that the commercial comes heavily into the art world. Fair point. And that's something one has to be aware of all the time. And it's, it's not easy to negotiate. Um, and not only does commercial, the commercial come in, but the celebrity. Um, as it were, comes in as well. So the public become obsessed with celebrity and we need to show a broader range of art here. It's, it, it, it's, it's always awkward, isn't it? It's never an easy one to... Does that question with. of celebrity come up in your discussions of choice of exhibitions, choice of collections, uh, choice of artists that are going to participate in your various uh, discussional bodies? It comes up all the time. And uh, we're very 
we're very aware of it. Um, I represent, in effect, about 120 artists, 80 up to the age of 75, and beyond that, another 40, and then honorary yes. RAs abroad. Now, some of those are at the peak of their career. Some of them are in the doldrums. Some of them have been forgotten. Some of them are frail. Some of them are starting off. All of them are genuine artists with something to say. And our job is to manage public perception so that they don't ask for the same people all the time. In a social media world where those peaks are yes. higher and higher for reasons that have nothing to do with artistic uh, contributions. It, exactly. I mean, it, but again, it's not straightforward because some of the great celebrities are absolutely deserving of notice. Of course, of course they are, but also have aspects to their lives and their art which aren't really in, don't interest the public. So there are two sides to this. Similarly, it's our job to continually bring attention to people who the public would enjoy. So how do you do that job? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's in a way, it's the same problem as, as putting together a menu of exhibitions. Because if you, if you don't include those figures, then you don't have the opportunity to show the other things alongside. So we try, we try to mix all the time, or just gently suggest. Um, it's never a battle. It's always a, it's always a gentle hint, move, arrange, conspire, whatever it is, to to make that happen. But but the, the underlying point is, if the academy wasn't there, we we'd be exposed to two systems: one, the entirely commercial, and two, the entirely government funded. So so in the ecology of the arts, the academy has a has a big purpose. So you're a bit of an arbiter of. Well, I, I don't. At least, at least, I tend to say we, we keep the door open. We just keep the door open. That's that's the best we can do to make sure there's that traffic between all parts of the art world. Otherwise, it would narrow down pretty rapidly. What is the biggest ethical conundrum that you've faced, either as an artist or as a leader of an arts institution? Well, I, I faced one quite recently. I don't know whether it's the biggest, but it's still much in my mind. Um, and uh, we had a what's called a defined benefits pension scheme that was started off in the late 70s, early 80s. That was for the people in the scheme, tremendously uh, worthwhile to them. And the pension would be inherited by their partner or spouse after they died. We couldn't afford it. We held on probably longer than many institutions because the artists, the academicians, who are the trustees of the academy, were saying, we must keep faith We've made a contract with these people. They've worked here for many, many years. We owe it to them. And on the other side, we're being told, if you carry on with this, you will be bankrupt. And that was tough. And that went all the way to General Assembly. Now, just to explain, the trustees of the, of the academy are the council. That's 13 academicians and three outsiders. That's, in effect, our cabinet government. Beyond that, General Assembly is our parliament. If ever there's a big question, it's taken to the parliament. So there's me suddenly sitting in a room with 60, 70, 80 people, many of whom are rather emotional about this subject. And when I sit there with my medal, I look like the executive. I look like the people making the bad business decisions. And the parliament are defending the people. And we went through this. This was really tough. This was really tough. 
Was this a black and white decision or was there compromise? We'd already been through the compromises. Okay. We'd been through the compromises at council trustee level, Okay. got to the end of the So this road. was either it's going to continue or it's not going to continue. Yes, and this, okay. was, this was really tough and we had a, we had a long two hour, three hour debate. Is it fair to ask you what the result of the discussion? Was, the result was that we decided we had to close the scheme. And we did it without pleasure, but in fact, it was rather an impressive event because the, the body of the academicians understood that there was no choice. But it was interesting it took us so long and so many years to gradually come to that decision because we didn't want to make that decision, but we had to. So that was a, that was, that was a tough one. Well, I think many ethical decisions, um, undergirding them is the kind of, we don't want to make them. Because yes. in many of today's decisions, it's not so much that there's good and bad, it's that there are degrees of good and bad on both sides or good and bad on both sides full stop. Yes. And it's a question of how to mitigate the risk of the bad and how to maximize the good, but it's not always very simple. So that must have been indeed a very, very difficult decision. It, it was, and also if you think that our treasurer, there are four officers, secretary, chief executive, president, treasurer and keeper. The treasurer is another artist. He was sitting there having to write papers about defined benefit pension schemes to an audience of artists, many of whom are major architects run big practices employing 200 people. Other people are just, they're working at home in the studio. So we find ourselves as artists suddenly involved in these, in a way I want to say, well out of our depth, but that's not quite honest because we have obviously very experienced staff to support us. We're absolutely in our depth when it's an ethical decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a human decision. But we try and get informed as much as we can. But I often pinch myself and say, what am, what am I doing? What am I doing here? You know, how did I, how did I go from just, just painting, happily drawing, the boy at school drawing and painting, suddenly I'm sitting here employing, I don't know, 300 and goodness knows how many people, this big, big organization. Then I think, then I think, no, this is wonderful. This isn't about me, by the way. There's an artist here. There's a group of artists running this, in charge, making decisions. That, that's, that's sort of miraculous. It is also very different from many other arts institutions. So it is definitely a unique, uh, a unique aspect of the Royal Academy. Yes, I, there were academies everywhere at one, at one stage. And, uh, but, but gradually they, did, they, they just disappeared. There are fewer. There's an older academy in uh, Stockholm, actually that we see as an academy in Madrid. There are a few of them still. Um, but it, 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 it's, it, it's, I must be careful not to use the word survivor because that's, that's the wrong thing. It's actually a constitution in mint condition still working. Thriving. Well, thank you. I, I, think, it's in, I think it's in, gosh, is there any wood? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. We're in, we're, we're, I think there's a spirit in the place anyway at the moment. But also the fact that you have living artists who, are, who do have celebrity, uh, and many would say deserved celebrity, who are so anxious to engage with you in ways, I mean, I saw the David Hockney exhibit, I saw Ai Weiwei. Yes. I know people who came back five and six times to see Ai Weiwei. I probably would have myself if I'd had the time. Uh, so the fact that living artists are engaging with you in a very unique way says a lot about the thriving. That's, that, that's changed a lot. If you went back 50 or 60 years, we were probably considered rather a, re a reactionary organisation, but that's utterly changed. And I, I tell you something that, that um, I was very impressed by, rather moved by recently. We had, in the Abstract Expressionist exhibition, which is on now, 
um, we had a room of Clifford Still paintings. Clifford Still was notoriously difficult, super ethical probably, notoriously difficult, proud. And his daughter was there, Sandra, looked a little bit like him, there she was. And I said to her, um, I took a risk on this, I said, your father could be quite difficult. And I waited and she said, yes, so I, that was all right. I said, would he have, would he have enjoyed this exhibition? Bated breath, she said, he would have loved it. And the reason is, I think, is we're not commercial. And all the things I've said that we're not, but we are an artist organization. So I think still would have appreciated it. The same happened with Ai Weiwei. The Ai Weiwei definitely has. Yeah, the same happened there. And that, well, that was, that was also a little bit difficult for us to manage too, because we're, we must remain apolitical. It could be ethical, but not political. You, you right. take, clear, that's clear. Um, but that changed the perception of the academy immensely. Even though the expression of political views was, uh, it was the views, uh, it was the views of a particular artist, that changed the image of the academy. No, something something rather different. Um, what what actually happened was that we'd cancelled an exhibition. We'd had doubts about an exhibition, and with only a year to go. We went to see Weiwei in Beijing and asked him to do the exhibition. And at that time, he was still in lockdown. He couldn't, he couldn't get out. And we arranged to do it. At the same time as the exhibition was opening, the Chinese president was coming to London. We didn't know whether Weiwei would be able to come because his visa was still held. Extraordinarily, his visa suddenly was possible. He was here. The Chinese president didn't come to see the show, but Weiwei was here. What happened? I don't know. I like, I have my fantasies about what might have happened, but I think in some respect, us showing Weiwei, I called him up next to me. I said, here he is. His family were here. Here he is. It was an ex extraordinary moment. We had a lunch. All the academicians welcomed him. He said, he stood up, he said, in this place, you say what you think. That's an extraordinary thing to say, especially coming from an artist like Ai Weiwei. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is a good segue if we can broaden the lens a little bit. What do you think are society's most pressing ethical problems today? When you read the newspapers, there seems to be a plethora of choice, of ethical challenge, of ethical dilemma, of sort of, my goodness, how could that happen type of reaction? What really resonates with you as either a challenge to... I think, I think we're very exposed if we make ethical decisions in a vacuum. Enormously exposed. It's like having to do the maths from the start without understanding maths. And although an ethical decision always comes to you, and by its nature must be your own decision, I think culture and language helps to make, helps you to find your way through. I think what's happening at the moment is that culture is somehow getting thinned out to a dangerous degree. When I started off as an artist, it was still a completely conventional view that in order to be a great painter, you should have read all the great novels. <laughs> you should 
have a grasp of philosophy. You should understand history. You should under, understand art history. And you should understand your place in that progression. And maybe try and do something. In other words, you must understand the richness of the background. Now, the richness of the background may help you to make an ethical decision. Otherwise, it's like being in a, in a shop. What do you want to buy? How much have I got to spend? Do I like that? or like, I don't know. What do I like? And there's it, nothing to help you make the decision. But I think an embedded participant in the culture, taught benignly about the culture, is, is placed ready to help them make the decision. It's still a, do you, do you follow? I understand exactly what you're saying because I've, um, I've put it in, in different ways. But one way is to say, I see ethical decision making or unethical decision making out of context. Yes. And so I think yes. what you're saying is, um, I'm not a theorist. Mm -hmm. I believe in practical ethics. I believe in applied ethics. Yes. And so I think what you're saying is, it's all very well and good to make a decision on one's own, mm -hmm. but actually we have to be informed Yes. And we have to think about not just the information feeding the decision, but the consequences on the world around us of the yes. decision. So yes. embedding our ethical thinking and decision making in the real world. Yes. Um, and culture is such an important part of that. And indeed, in many of today's cultures and many of the news headlines are about different cultures, different nationalities, different religious traditions, um, bumping up against each other in ways that are unprecedented. Yeah. And then what does that mean for this context in which we're making ethical decisions? Yes. So yes. I, think, I think your focus on, on, you use the word background, mm -hmm. um, and certainly reference to the whole constellation of the arts and humanities mm -hmm. is critically important and is getting thinned out. And we'll come to, in a bit, uh, the, the implications with respect to science and technology, mm -hmm. but it may be that there's sort of limited space, and so there's more space being given to science and technology and perhaps less to to the arts. Yes. I want to um, follow up on your comment though. You, you wrote an op-ed recently uh, and there was also um, a, a sort of a, a lot of response to that about um, eliminating art history mm -hmm. from what in the UK is called A-level curriculum. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was incredibly well written and incredibly important. But can you speak a little bit about that? This, uh, this op-ed is from October 2016. Well, it comes back to what, to what, I, to what I said, that um, on the face of it, art history being not a practical subject, not immediately helpful going forward in a future career, that it should be discarded is profoundly dangerous because I, I turn it upside down. I turn it the other way up. Here's something which talks about your background, your memory, what your parents learned, what, your, what you might contribute constructively to society, about making, about feeling, all of these things in this package, which we happen to call art history. And to leave that out is to, is to make the menu rather banal. Um, particularly for young people. Young people are natural romantics. They're full of risk, courage, they're not enormously sensible, thank God, <laughs> because, in fact, someone said that uh, young people, teenagers are like, like artists, they learn to live with um, uncertainty because everything's changing, they're, they're growing. That's a tremendous value for society. 
So these subjects, like art history, provide an opportunity for a sort of uh, a way into something else that isn't just completely useful. I'm actually saying it is profoundly useful, but it's not surface useful. It's not surface useful. Well, I, I sort of have two reactions to what you're saying. One is that uh, this is critically important to engaging in context, that without this preliminary kind of study, whether it's art history or some of the humanities that you mentioned, yeah. when young people grow up to become adults and have responsibilities in society, they will lack context. Um, and the second thing that comes to mind is that many things that we think are not useful are in fact a foundation. They're not the end game, they're the beginning. Yes. Uh, and so I, again, applaud, as many have, your op-ed piece. Well, it, 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 it is, I, I feel very strongly about it. And uh, there's another aspect to it. Take a nursery rhyme. Uh, if our mothers sang to us, or fathers sang to us, you have these things in your, in, your, in your head. It's the very uselessness of them makes them trustworthy. <laughs> they teach little lessons, tiny lessons, but they're mainly trustworthy. So these phrases, if you're taught well, literature and languages and art history and history, you remember these little things coming to you that will help you out if you're in a spot. Could be a little phrase. Could be could be from a, a, a religious text. It could be from a great novel. It could be from a children's story. But that's the that's the that's the richness of memory and background. So that goes back to my right. earlier question about where do you get your principles from? Yes, <laughs> that some of these very simple things can be great sources of principles. Yes. Yes. Um, in yes. addition, in some of these conversations, this idea of the richness of the past or the tragedy that we seem to forget the past so quickly has come up. Yes. So certainly with the refugee crisis and, and you know, many have looked at the arts and, that, and the tradition and the humanities as a source of memory. Yep. And certainly if we're going to be making ethical decision making today, how is it that we have forgotten so many things, Nazi Germany, etc., so quickly? Mm. Is there a specific artist or a specific work in any genre, it doesn't have to be the visual arts, that you think is particularly powerful in addressing ethical questions or conveying ethical messages? Something you've read, something you've seen, something you've watched? Let's take a great painting like a Claude Lorraine landscape. What's, what in a sense is ethical in that painting is the perfect organization of the entire space. Because what he, what he does in that painting and I want you to imagine a big landscape here, and it might be the departure of Aeneas from Carthage or something like that. Let's just imagine okay. any subject. It, it's the integration of the history and the story, the costume, the weather, the foliage, the animals, the distance, the space, the integration of an entire worldview in a picture. I mean, a great novelist, Tolstoy, you know, one could say War and Peace, easily. But the picture speaks to me a little bit more because all the elements were put together by hand. And here I'm introducing yet another thing <laughs> because the handmade, which we take for granted as being reliable Very and much good, so. don't you think? Yes. But why? The letter from your grandmother that you found in the attic carries a little bit more than the email. It really does. It really the slightly faded ink 
gosh, did, was that our handwriting? These things, you, you see, so I'm, I'm combining that with the, the built painting. But of course, it was called Doreen. It's handwriting zoomed up 10,000% into, into the work of the great master of touch. The paintbrush. This is my, this is my picture of painting. The paintbrush is the most delicate conveyor of touch that's ever been invented. The great pianist would say, hang on, it's a piano. But what we're listening for all the time is those little micro expressions of touch that we see in each other's faces and that you see in the painting. The painting represents human touch in an extraordinarily sensitive state. As somebody who has no artistic talent whatsoever, <laughs> I'm very sensitive to the way you describe these landscapes because with an atemporal art, mm -hmm. somehow the artist manages to place us in a scene that is actually happening, yeah. that one could imagine unraveling in time. So yes. if it were, yes. uh, if it were uh, a writer, if it, if it were Tolstoy, mm -hmm. it would mm -hmm. unravel in time and our experience yes. with it would yes. unravel in time. But somehow with the paintbrush, we're able to feel the humanity of it when it's all happening at once and somehow the artist has yeah. managed to put us in this scene with all of it happening at once. It is extraordinary. Yes, it is. And it's also why it's so poignant because it's, it's stuck in time and it doesn't move. In a world where everything moves, the bliss, <laughs> the bliss of the ideal painting that's just sitting there forever is something, again, and it calls to people you can show people a little drawing on a scrap of paper, their eye will go to it. It comes to back to recognition and noticing. Why are they noticing it? Something, something going on. And you say to someone, will you, will you draw me a map of how to get to Piccadilly Circus? They say, I can't draw. They're actually saying, I think there's something important about drawing. Otherwise they wouldn't say it. I say that all the time, by the way. I'm absolutely convinced there's well, there some are. connection between my eye, my hand, and whatever object that is just not there. I could get you drawing, don't worry. Definitely. But do you have, when you have, a, as, a, as a professional artist, mm. when you see a painting that, as you say, is fixed in time, and you go back to it, say, five years later or ten years later, does your experience with that painting change? Yes, definitely. Uh, often the, um, the vividness that I experienced when I first, first saw it is gone. I went to a Paul Nash exhibition at Tate Britain, and there's some wonderful landscapes there, landscape of the vernal equinox of, of, a, of a place in Berkshire. And I remember seeing that painting aged about 16. It was really like, oh, never forget it. Now I see it, I, I don't have, I'm afraid I don't have that immediacy. I love the painting, I respect it, all these things, but it doesn't give me that sudden sort of suffusion of feeling which... You're also which coming I, at it with vast artistic expertise at this well, point in your career. I've certainly seen a lot of painting. So, as I mentioned earlier, today is uh, election day in the United States. If you had to recommend to Donald Trump uh, or uh, Hillary Clinton one work of art or literature or, or dance, for that matter, any arts, that you think would give them a particularly helpful ethical message, what would you recommend? I'd go to that. I'd go to one of those, go to one of those paintings. paintings. Just live okay. with it. Just live with it. <laughs> Indeed, that give it be. time, give it time as well. Well, just live with it. In fact, maybe one of the most powerful messages or responses one could give to some of their rhetoric. Would you want to live with that yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Let's come back to education. Um, this op-ed piece that you did was about art history and its place in secondary school education. 
We're seeing increasingly that science and technology are taking uh, a greater role in education in curriculum time, in curriculum budgets, mm -hmm. and in part it's that we're hearing, well, that's necessary to keep up with society, and in part we're hearing, well, that's necessary to get a job, very practical end game. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the relationship um, between the arts and then science and technology, first at the level of education and then perhaps more generally? I think they're less divided than they used to be. You know, there was this, this notion of the two cultures. There was a novelist called C.P. Snow, I think it may have yes. been in the 50s, the two cultures. Um, I think it's, it's less apparent. I mean, just take engineering for a start. I, I worked with an engineer on a big sculpture for the, for the city, um, just behind the Bank of England. And engineering now, I could possibly have been an engineer. I wouldn't have been an engineer as a schoolboy because it was all maths and technology, but now it's as much drawing and imagination and potential as it is the, uh, as exactitude. And I think that goes, that goes for the arts. For example, my younger son is just setting up a, um, a business. So he's learning about all the ways of setting up business. It's amazing how many judgments he has to make which are to do with the visual. What's the brand? What, what's it, all these things? What's the website going to look like? So the interpenetration of art and technology is, is with us, and I'm not really well qualified to talk about it, except for knowing that those generations are now working with... In fact, what's going on here, when you're doing the editing, you're all making visual decisions as well as content decisions all the time. So it's penetrating the two areas really, really uh, to a huge extent. And we're certainly seeing more and more that design matters um, to product function. Yes. Um, so that perhaps design experts who have an engineering background, but who also have an arts background, might solve some of the issues around things like shelter for refugees. Um, so very functional and very societal and necessary things. But we're also seeing the commercial side. I mean, certainly Apple has an incredible number of design experts. Yeah. And the design is very much part of what sells. Well, the, be the beauty of the... Right. of whatever the piece is, right. is, is enormously attractive. And I, I remember all, all, sorry, it seems like an exaggeration, but all artists went to Mac because it was such, it was so beautiful. <laughs> just, just that. Um, I just on that, just uh, something I've just remembered on the question of art history. I think there was a, there's a danger of often governments coming in too late on something. And I think what's happening at the moment, they may be on a model of the distinction between art and maths and science that is already a little bit old-fashioned. It's already outdated. Yeah. Mm. And I think maybe they're not on a model um, in the UK system in particular, where at university level already very young students are having to choose a program of study that is exclusive, as yes. opposed to the US model where one has a major and might get a degree in biology, but there are actual requirements to take courses outside and quite a number of of courses outside one specialty. Yes. So I think it's exacerbated in the UK. Um, but it's, it's very true that when we step in and try to regulate things, by definition in today's world, we're usually behind. I mean, the only thing I would say is. in defense of the UK system is that we want everything. We want to have our cake and eat it because the specialties do give you depth. And depth at an early age, I think in my case, when I just studied English literature, medieval history and art, it allowed me so much depth in the literature field 
that I suddenly got it. <laughs> right. And if I just skimmed through, I might not have had that experience. But you're quite right. You want breadth and you want depth. So that's the... Is that an ethical dilemma? <laughs> Probably it's a practical one. Well, I think we certainly, I think we certainly need both. And it, is a, it, is, it does have practical implications. Yes. What keeps you up at night? <laughs> Running the Royal Academy. You've had this very, very challenging situation with the pension scheme, and that's a human challenge. I said to somebody mm. the other day that these ethical dilemmas that look financial almost always are human. Uh, and that's, you know, you've, you've what, had that. What keeps you up at night is people. People. In the end, it almost always comes down to people. So your paintings are fine. <laughs> That just lives with a constant level of anxiety, but it doesn't, it doesn't keep me awake at night. No, it's people, because almost every issue that comes up has a person attached to it. That person wants that, that person wants that. I don't want to upset either of them, <laughs> but I have to. And that, that's the thing, because there's no such thing as a, as an, as, uh, a question without an accompanying face. I name. think that's so well put, especially in the ethics sphere. Christopher, what have I not asked you that I should <laughs> ask you? What would you like to say about, about anything about your art, about the Royal Academy, um, with or without a relationship to ethics? I don't know. I've enjoyed it. I mean, I, I felt tremendously under, underprepared. But in fact, I realised in conversation that these things interpenetrate almost everything, everything we do. But I think there all, there's also, and maybe... I think this is important. There's a big emotional side to this. I mean, th when I hear ethics, I think, ah, oh, you weigh up this, you weigh up that. What's the logic? Actually, there's this powerful undercurrent which is making this judgment, which is highly emotional. I had to do this recently. We, we had to decide whether to let the Tondo, which are a great Michelangelo sculpture, whether we were prepared to loan it. And it's got a crack in it. So the risk is, it might break. It's very unlikely, but it might. So there's the risk. So we have the council meeting. I don't think I'm letting anything out here because by the time it's up, it'll be known. And I didn't know which way they'd decide, whether we keep it, we're not going to lend it, or whether we are going to lend it. And they decided to lend it. But before they got that, I said, look, and we were on film, actually. I said, um, I said, you all know artists are paragons of logic and intellect. But actually, I, I want to say something about the emotional side of this. I'm not supposed to say this, but actually we feel this is our piece. You're not supposed to say it. We're custodians, we're guardians, we hand on. I can't, if I'm honest with you, it feels like our piece. I'm going to, I'm going to confess that. And because it's, it feels like that, it's very attached to the origin of the Royal Academy being given to us. And it's, like, it's the greatest Michelangelo sculpture in this country, one of the few north of the Alps. Because of that, I feel emotional about this. Emotional in which direction that you should... Emotional to keep it, okay. to not share it. That's a bad thought. That's a bad thought, I confess. Okay. I've just been honest. But the council took the view that we should share it. And I was completely happy with the decision. I said what I felt, and I couldn't get out of that feeling. I'm very happy to hear you reference the emotional, because if we look at some of the most serious ethical dilemmas that we're seeing playing out in the streets today, I'll take an example from America, the Black Lives Matter, mm. and some of the issues around police violence. 
um, clearly there is enormous emotion around the way bystanders and people who are not directly involved in a particular incident are reacting. There's enormous emotion, and rightfully so, around mm. that campaign. There's enormous emotion around the refugee crisis. So I'm very happy to hear you say that because all too often when we hear ethics in today's world, there's um, a reference to sort of business ethics and what I would say people interpret as box ticking, mm -hmm. sort of a hoop to jump through that you just have to do in case somebody does something wrong in your company. But in fact, these are fundamentally human questions, yeah. even in a financial institution. So I, I'm, I'm very happy to hear you reference emotions. Um, Christopher, thank you so much. It's well, truly been you. an honor. And in particular, to be sitting in front of your spectacular painting here. I hope it hasn't frightened your, uh, your viewers <laughs> of that bread. <laughs> I don't think so. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Susan.